1: Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Kerry Lutz. After graduating from law school, Kerry became an attorney and serial entrepreneur, which included running a legal printing business, uh, practicing commercial law and litigation, uh, and founding a successful distressed asset investment company. After the 2008 financial collapse, he dedicated himself to helping people protect and preserve their wealth by rebalancing their investment portfolios away from Wall Street. Carrie also hosts a podcast since 2000, uh, 2011 with nearly 9,000 episodes. So thank you so much for being on the show, Carrie.
0: Hey, pleasure to be here with you, Charles. I'm
1: honored. So give us a little background on yourself prior to getting involved with what you're working on now and with your show. I think it's right around somewhere around the great financial crisis.
0: Yeah, well, in 08 and 09, uh, you know, everything was going to hell in a handbasket. And I pretty much thought that this was the moment that we'd all been waiting for, that uh, the Austrian economist had predicted and foresaw for many years out there. And I was wrong. Uh, But I did manage to buy gold at its cycle low and silver and did quite well on that. And my business was still good. The distressed asset business, still good. But there were storm clouds on the horizon. And I felt like you know, I just wanted to do something that I felt gave more meaning that I would enjoy. And I kind of stumbled on the world of podcasting. And that led, led me down a path to where I am today, where, you know, I've been doing it now for 11, going on the 12 years. And uh, definitely been the best journey of my life.
1: Fantastic. You mentioned something there. And I I, unless people are listening to your show, or they listen to like Peter Schiff, they don't really understand what Austrian economics is. And can you explain, um, you know, high level what that is, and the beliefs of people that um, read about that and believe in that? Sure.
0: Well, basically, Austrian economics is really about the free market. And the theory being that markets function best when they're left to their own devices, and meaning that uh, government intervention is kept to an absolute minimum and you view the government's role as referee rather than uh, referee and participant. Imagine uh, if you're in a sports game and the guy who uh, is the referee also has a huge bet on your opposing team. Do you think you're going to get fair and reasonable decisions out of that referee, or is every decision gonna go against you? So with that, the theory that free markets work best, they don't always work perfectly, Uh, there's always dislocations, but markets provide information to the participants in those markets in the form of prices. And when the government interferes with the pricing mechanism, they wind up giving false information or incorrect information to the participants. And a perfect example of that, bringing it current, is the zero interest rate policy that our government, our central bank, and the world's governments and central banks pursued for many years unsuccessfully. All right? The only thing that resulted in was higher levels of debt. But think about, we've got a concept in... Austrian economics called malinvestment. And those are, that's money that, due to these policies, goes into places where it shouldn't. And you only have to look to China at the ghost cities they have there. Uh, The only way they've been able to fill these ghost cities is by ordering people to move their businesses and their homes there. Or look at it here during um, the real estate collapse in 08 and 09, where They made it so cheap and effectively people believe that uh, they make economic decisions based on rate of return. When interest rates are held artificially low, a lot of the decisions are made to pursue investments and businesses that really don't make economic sense were the natural rate, uh, the natural interest rate, meaning the market interest rate, if that were to be allowed to happen. And then you wind up with crashes in the business cycle, 08 and 09. Um, you can't really call the pandemic as a result of the business cycle, but uh, we go back and uh, every 14 years or so, there's a uh, recession. And then the government sets the printing presses on full speed ahead. And then seemingly that's over, but it's setting the stage for the next and the next if we had sound money, oh, and the other thing is, in today's world, we had the everything bubble, real estate, cars, student loans, um, the stock and bond market, you know, securities markets, all these markets were at bubble ranges. Now, in the good old days, you had bubbles uh, led to uh, excessive exuberance and over speculation in markets but you only had it in one market at a time. You couldn't have the everything bubble. And as we know, all bubbles, all bull markets end with a bust. So the concept of a soft landing that the Federal Reserve is espousing uh, just could not be further from reality. We'll be lucky if they manage to uh, land this 747 with the gears up and we have a crash landing and the plane doesn't blow up.
1: So yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great explanation of it. And I always feel um, you know, I listen to Pierre Schiff and stuff like that. And his big thing is, and I totally agree with it, is you know, the the free market gets a really bad rap when they are um when we tell oh, this is because of the free market, and we don't really have a free market. We have so much government intervention in everything, just like you said, um, between Sally May with student loans to, I mean, how many mortgages out there are guaranteed by the government. And it's something that when it all went up, it's, it's much different in other countries where we actually, in other countries, actually require a sizable down payment on properties and stuff like this, and the government's not as much involved with it. Which is that you're having much more sound people that are lending the money um, making decisions on it.
0: Well, think of it this way How much do you think a college education would cost if there was no government financing available for you to pursue your degree? It would be a fraction yeah. of what it is now. So, government intervention in these markets actually serves to inflate the prices. Mm-hmm. What do you think the price of a house would be if there was no government-backed 30-year mortgage, no Fannie, no Freddie, and whoever else is left? Um, It would be a fraction of it. So what would a car cost if you had to pay cash for it and you couldn't get uh, these crazy loans? Uh, The fact is that the banks feed the inflationary frenzy. And then eventually, uh, you see what happens. They blow up. And then uh, the government's got to step in because you can't have depositors uh, on the hook. And last time they bailed out the management and the depositors and the creditors. This time it appears that they're not willing to do that. And the reasons are obvious. Uh, The the blowback and the disgust by uh, average Americans, not that they care about that, but they do at least once every two years or every four years uh, was enormous. So last time during the pandemic, they said, all right, we'll bail everybody out. But we got to bail out Main Street, too. And they did to a lesser degree. So at least Main Street got its piece. But at what cost? The cost now is inflation, uh, the inflation which will last if we don't have a total complete economic meltdown, it'll last 10 to 20 years. That's how long inflationary cycles do 68 to 82. And I would argue it was even longer than that, but you know, so from my standpoint, this is the reality. If they don't blow up the system and we're all screwed, then, then how do you profit from it really is the question. And, uh, I think you've got part of the answer. It's real estate. It's precious metals. Mm -hmm. It's alternative investing. It's owning assets for which you can realize cash flow that will at least go up as much as inflation, or even if it doesn't, assets that are leveraged, that uh, the debt becomes worth less and less as the asset appreciates. And I'll give you a perfect example of the strategy Working Now, there are times when it doesn't, okay, times when it doesn't, but you have to go under the assumption that inflation rewards debtors and penalizes savers. And I remember my father built a house in a leafy suburb of New Jersey, well-known suburb, uh, known as one of the wealthiest suburbs in the country, but we were not by any stretch wealthy. We were middle-class uh, reaching living beyond our means, uh, but my father built the house, so it was at a discount, so he was smart there. That house cost, I think, $56,000 in 1963, which was wow. pretty healthy for a house yeah. with the land, and he had a mortgage on it, and eventually my mother sold that house in 1984 for uh, around $400,000, which is pretty decent return, you know, close to eightfold return for a, uh, 20 year investment, 63 to 84 might've been 83. Don't quote me on it. Don't go looking up the property records and say, Hey, you said this, I'm giving you approximate numbers. So 56,000. And, uh, I think my father fully financed it because he was the builder and back then, uh, He just said uh, general construction fees, and he was able to do 100% financing. So he had a 50-some-odd-thousand-dollar mortgage. The monthly payment, which sometimes was difficult, was probably about $350 plus $100 a month in taxes, maybe $200. Fast forward to 1983, the mortgage was mostly paid off. I don't think we ever had a mortgage-burning party. And, you know, my mother was still paying 350 bucks a month, probably $500 a month in taxes. Her taxes went to more than the mortgage, and she sold it. And as bad as inflation was, it hadn't gone up eightfold during that time. So there was a real profit there of probably several hundred thousand dollars. And let's face it, you got to have a place to live. You know, you got to either going to rent it or you're going to buy it or you're going to be a squatter somewhere. Right. But you got to have a roof. And um, so if we figured out what the imputed rental was for all that time, you know, maybe maybe the imputed rental was a thousand dollars a month because it was a big house, you know, still come out way, way ahead. So it was a thousand dollars on average a month. That would mean that uh the cost of the place was about 240000 in rent. So mm-hmm. you, you could, you know, that's how the government calculates this stuff, you know, owner equivalent rent.
1: Right. OER. I, yeah. And that's why it keeps the inflation down too, because that's everybody will always say that they pay less for their house than, you know what I mean, than it really would cost if they went out to rent it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if they rented it, uh, then the house would have been free, basically, because mm-hmm. the rent would have covered all of the cash flow would have covered it. And uh, so that was effectively income there that doesn't go on any tax return. But point being here that that house now is probably selling for a million and a half to $2 million 20 years later, right? And uh, probably the people had a $350,000, $400,000 mortgage Right. So, what's the debt service on that mortgage now? Back then, 83, they probably refinanced it 10 times since then. But let's just say they stuck with that mortgage. It was 8%. They were paying, uh, you know, $3,000 a month. Now the taxes are probably $2,000 a month. But um, the house in that period of time went up uh, three to four times or three and a half to four to five times. I mean, that's pretty good return. I mean, I saw when five years ago, six years ago, they put it on the market for, I think, 1.4 million. So, you know, and real estate prices in that area have only gone up. My point being that this is inflation working for you. And if you had, you own that house and you rented it out all this time, you could then sell it make a million bucks, all right? And uh, the formula is pretty simple. Now, it's not to say there aren't periods of time because you can't go look at a uh, ticker to see what your house is worth. You can look at Zillow and get an approximate number, but you don't know from day to day whether your house went up $1,000 this month or down, which as uh, some investment experts have said, that's a good thing so you're not totally obsessed. Obviously, if you keep refying till you die and you keep taking your equity out, your profit's not gonna be that great at the end. The key is when you buy assets, you can refi and then buy other assets. So assets that have a return really go for a premium here. And hey, I don't know what the future is gonna be, but if it continues on like the past, investing in inflation, as Will Rogers said, invest in inflation. It's the only thing going up. That is a virtually surefire way to uh,
1: pay for your retirement. So, Carrie, when you're making your investment decisions, um, how important is taxes? Because we're talking a lot about inflation. We're talking about infl- uh, investing into inflation, um, assets that uh, adjust with inflation. I mean, how, how do you work taxes into your investment decisions?
0: Well... You know, there is a number of ways of tax saving strategies. I'm not the expert on it, but I look uh, to take all the, I look at um, taking all of the available uh, deductions for me and uh, taking losses at the time when uh, profits are going to be taken so I can uh, minimize it. And really, you have to look at uh, taxes as just part of, the landscape, you know, it's just like the crime rate. Uh, although some might argue that taxes are a form of theft, and and that's basically how you do it uh, in my book. And if there's times where you could do investment property, ten thirty one exchanges, uh, cost segregation studies, all these things, you take it. Anything that's legally available, you take. And you know, you try not to be too aggressive because uh you know if you're a pig you get slaughtered but what's legally allowable you take it's that simple
1: so with you mainly focusing on alternative assets do you still invest into the stock market at all or any equities or anything like that
0: oh yeah but i look to do that at a discount and i look to do it based on uh superior knowledge and mm-hmm. uh you know uh, that's That's pretty much how I do it I like private placements a lot they've I've done really well on most of them. You know you're going to have your losers uh even Warren Buffett has losers, although he probably has less than you and I but uh I want to do it based on industries I understand as well yeah. as I can that are relatively transparent um that have a, that I have an edge in, and that just happens to be uh uh, junior mining, and junior energy. <clears throat> I feel like I have somewhat of an advantage there, and I like to get close to the management. <clears throat> Excuse me.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's great. Investing in assets that you understand is probably one of the biggest takeaways from learning about Warren Buffett, and that's something I believe you can take into uh, for many years into the future, no matter what changes, because many people get involved in investing into um, Asks is that they don't understand, I'm not saying they're bad, bad investments, but there just might be things they don't know. It's like when people explained to me years back about crypto, but they didn't really understand it. They couldn't explain yeah. it to me. And it's like, well, maybe I'm not saying this is bad. Maybe this is something they just don't understand. It's something you have to learn more about. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. You shouldn't invest in something if you don't understand it, because when something goes wrong, you won't really understand what you need yeah. to do. And I've been in that situation before. I mean, it's happened to me. And uh, if you don't understand it, stay away. is yeah. the thing like buying the big banks. You can buy them on cycles, but just because they get hit and they're going low, you can, I ch- challenge anybody out there other than somebody who's an auditor to actually look at their financials and tell me what their total risk exposure is. Because I don't think it can be done. And I remember I was at... Um this was in 08 after the uh, banking collapse. I went to a presentation up in the 92nd Street Y in New York by this guy I think his name was Charles Winter. It's called the Wintergreen Fund Fund and uh, he was a value investor and somebody asked him, "Hey, Citibank is down 80% or 70%, is it a good buy?" And he said, look at their balance sheet and, you know, there might be something hidden in the 150th footnote and you'll never catch it. Mm -hmm. You will never catch it. And it could mean that it'll go down even more. Maybe it was down 50% at that time. Mm -hmm. It was a high flyer prior to the uh, collapse and then it got hit. But before the bailouts took place, before anybody understood what happened, And he was exactly right. Mm. I like industries that are transparent. So mining uh, stocks are transparent in as far as their finances go, their news releases, everything else. As far as whether they have a real project and a real company, you can infer those things. But the actual financial statements are transparent. I like industries where, hey, you look at Coca-Cola, maybe it's more complicated now, but you know, their business is, uh, get making America fat. Right. And that's definitely a growth industry on several levels. And, um, you know, it's worked for Buffett and they, they make billions of dollars. We'll see in the future as people become more enlightened about what they put in their m- mouths, determining their lifespan and their health span. But, um, Obesity has been a really good play. McDonald's, all your fast food places, and your Crafts, your uh, Procter & Gamble's, all those companies basically been obesity plays. And um, so I like transparency in a company. And just like when you're looking at a real estate deal, you're going to go send an inspector out there so you'll have transparency on the quality of the property, the cash flow. You're looking at all the, uh, the rent roll reports. You're looking at the repairs, the utilities, all the costs. It's all out there for you. So you can make an informed decision whether this is right for you or not. <clears throat> Obviously, when you're dealing with the stock market, it's not all black and white.
1: Right. For sure. Uh, I want to touch on something that I read about you uh, previously, and talking about buying undervalued assets, and you ran a distressed asset investment company, and I believe it was around credit card debt. Um, I mean, can you go into more detail of what your business actually did, the assets that you were picking up, and how were you valuing those as someone that understood that asset class?
0: Yeah, so, you know, that was kind of during the golden years before there was a huge consumer backlash. Uh, so we buy debt when we started out, sometimes we buy it as little as a penny on the dollar um, To it, towards the end when the industry started becoming rational, 10, 12 cents on the dollar. And we'd look at uh, opportunity initially just collecting 12 cents on the dollar, but later on we realized we could collect 25 to 35 cents on the dollar. And that's with all in costs and everything. So, um, you know, there were ways of doing due diligence on portfolios of assets. And it wasn't just credit cards, other things, secured assets. And, you know, but basically unsecured assets we like best. And you would review it. And in the end, it could be a dog or it could be great. So who is selling it to you is very important. <clears throat> because you know, you had to know your seller, And the same things we look at here in, uh, in any industry, buying anything. you know, you prefer to buy your next real estate property from somebody who's been around for 35 years rather than some shady fly-by-night character who uh, has massive amounts of judgments against them, all that. So who you're buying from is very,
1: very important. Interesting. So over the years, Carrie, as we're wrapping up here, how has your relationship towards money changed?
0: Well, you know, I always like
1: to say I've I've, uh, made five
0: fortunes in my life and I've lost three and a half of them. Okay, so the best experience you can't, you know, my father always used to say, if you get into a new business, you're going to pay for lessons. All right. You're going to pay for lessons. And every business I've gone into, I've paid for lessons. Some of the costs were less than others. And what I've learned is that uh, you're never a failure unless you believe you're a failure. You're never a loser unless you believe you're a loser. And as long as you're learning from the mistakes you've made, then, then eventually you'll succeed. And if you don't give up, never give it up. Never been a quitter in my life. And this is what I try to get through to people is that um, persistence, perseverance. Um, Woody Allen said, and I love this saying, 80% of life or 90% of life is showing up. And look, keep your goals firmly, firmly in place. Never, ever uh, forget what it is you're working towards, and why. The why is so important. Now, of recent years, I realized a lot of the businesses I've been in, I didn't really like, I didn't enjoy for various reasons. Um, High stress, um, bad customers, bad partners. Uh, So I decided I wanted to be in a business that I enjoyed, that I loved what I did. Uh, They always say, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life, right? Um, There's some truth to this. Following your passion, it's a cliche at this point. There's a million people on the internet telling you, follow your passion. But if your passion is collecting uh, nails or valueless items that never will have value, what good is that going to do you? You better find another passion. <laughs> and you might be in a business that isn't your passion. Well, if it's really profitable, make it your passion. All right. Um, just like I don't believe there's one soulmate in life, you could have multiple soulmates. There's not one passion. You might have certain things you like to do the best, but you know I'm passionate about uh, earning an above average income that's my passion. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to sell my soul to do that. I won't do it. I have certain values, integrity that uh, I've built up over the years. And I have a name that I don't want to ruin. But when you take all these things into account, yes, follow your passion. But if something isn't your passion, ask yourself, why? Why am I not following my passion now? And nine times out of 10, you could be passionate about a number of things probably you don't you haven't learned enough you don't know enough you don't see a pathway to success you're frustrated and the reason you're not passionate about what you're doing is emotional and look like nobody wants to clean bathrooms all right uh, but that is an honest living but you're not you have to see what you're doing in the broader scheme of things all right. And that means that why is what you're doing important? Even the most trivial job in society is important uh, to the overall whole uh, that showed dirty jobs by Mike Rowe. We couldn't live without those dirty jobs being done. You know, being a bridge painter in New York City, it's great because uh, you're part of a union in the East. Uh, maybe not so great in Florida here, but you're still getting paid above average income because nobody wants to do that job, but it is essential. You can't have highways without bridge painters. Can't do it. So in a way, all of society is depending upon you, the bridge painter, to do a good job and paint that bridge properly. And you know some of the happiest people I ever met Granted, the job doesn't exist anymore, especially in Florida, were toll booth attendants. You know, they loved what they did. They loved coming to work every day. So it's all mindset, is what I'm saying. But if you absolutely don't think your job is a pathway to success, then you need to change. And you might as well change into something you feel passionate about. But following your passion can often lead to failure. All right. How about? Be passionate about what you're doing now until a a more profitable passion comes along. Don't just say, I love uh, being a puppeteer, so I'm going to go get my PhD in puppeteering, and then I'm going to go try to make a living. You know, useless degrees. Following your passion is not necessarily obtaining a useless degree from a useless college. Uh, All of the real learning that takes place in life and Oscar Wilde said it best, and I'm a quote collector. If you hadn't noticed, anything worth learning can't be taught. But I would put an asterisk now. Anything worth learning might be difficult to learn, but you can learn it from the internet. And uh, I'm always reminded of this other quote. A, um, a smart person, an intelligent person, can learn from their own mistakes. A truly wise person learns from the mistakes of others. And, you know, I was in business with my father in the printing company, definitely not a company I was passionate about by any stretch, but I managed to build it up pretty well. And uh, he used to let me make mistakes on my own. And then we'd do a post mortem of those mistakes. And throughout time, When my father was gone, I'd still do postmortems of my blunders to this day. And honesty about your mistakes, that's how you learn from them. Don't beat yourself up about it. Don't self flagellate. Learn, put it aside, go on. I think the best thing you can do is when you're analyzing a blunder, all right, find the lesson and then find something to laugh at, all right, something that you like screwed up that's. Ridiculous! That's hysterical. Laugh at it. That will enable you to let go of the pain and move on, and take the lessons with you.
1: Oh, very well said, Carrie. So, how can our listeners learn more about you, your business, and also uh, your podcast that's going on ten thousand episodes or nine thousand episodes?
0: Yeah, yeah, we're getting close. Uh, it's simple: financialsurvivalnetwork dot com, and uh, uh, we aggregate a lot of news alternative news that the media doesn't uh, provide you with, which is why the current crisis is no surprise to yours truly. The exact timing, yeah, I didn't know when it was going to be, but I knew after the pandemic was happening. So just go there. We got a YouTube channel, Carrie Lutz's Financial Survival Network, and uh, you could just do a Google search and, uh, and that's about it.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Carrie, And um, yeah, looking forward to meeting you sometime face-to-face. Hey, likewise, since we're neighbors. Have a great rest of your day. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you.